Today Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, the healthcare podcast where we talk everything value-based care with the top experts in the field. Welcome back to Unlocking Accountable Care. I'm Max Blumenthal, and as always, I'm joined by Sarah Bliss-Matusik. All right, Sarah, are you ready? Because in this episode, we are going to be talking about something that strikes fear into a lot of people. Healthcare professionals are not. You know what that is? Change. That's right. As we've been discussing, the transition to value-based care brings with it a lot of change for healthcare organizations and in the way that doctors and other clinicians have to provide the healthcare that they're giving. Although no one would say that things in the healthcare industry are ever really stagnant, I think people working in the field would agree that, especially nowadays, they feel pulled particularly in at least two directions by the changes that are on the horizon and also by the just inevitable inertia that everyone feels towards kind of keeping the status quo and kind of keeping on the way that they've been doing things for for years. Yeah, exactly. And today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Namita Seth Moda, who specializes in helping organizations through this tricky transition. And specifically, she helps them think about what it means for their staff and, of course, their patients. So today I think will be both fun and informative because Dr. Moda and I will be discussing one of the buzziest of buzz phrases in healthcare today, which is population health management. Um, And the reason I think that our audience will love this is because we will really dive into what sort of changes doctors and healthcare providers need to think about making in this new value-based world. All right. So first off, what is population health management and why is it a term that inspires such buzz, but also has a lot of people in the field shying away from using it? Right. So broadly, Emphasizing population health means that providers really can't afford to narrowly focus on the patient only when they're in front of them in the exam room. Uh, The healthcare organizations that are now becoming more and more financially responsible for all of the health outcomes for the group of patients that they serve, they have to start thinking about the care that that patient receives across a different range of healthcare settings and even in the community or in their home. So in general, a population health management approach involves gathering as much information as possible about patient health and then the healthcare services that they're using and identifying how care can be informed or directed by what insights are gleaned from all of that information pulling together. So population health management as a phrase has been identified as a really important strategy, but because it encompasses so many different things, many in the industry feel that the phrase is too ambiguous. One colleague even said that she's constantly Googling it because it just means different things to different people. Don't worry, though. Uh, we're going to unpack all the different aspects of this population health management sort of concept or strategy that providers are using to better the health of their patients today. Well, I hope that should be a relief for everyone that's been hearing this term being thrown around, but really hasn't fully been able to understand, you know, what it encompasses or even what it means. You know, I've definitely found myself being that person in a meeting needing to Google things just to be able to keep up. So at least now we have a common jumping off point to talk about it and, and to really dive into it deeper and later in your conversation. You also mentioned that beyond the shift to thinking about big picture population health, this transition to value-based care is bringing changes to the way that doctors deliver care to individual patients on a day-to-day basis. 
do you really mean that doctors provide care differently to patients in value-based contracts versus those who are in traditional fee-for-service? Yeah, they, they actually do, sort of. So first of all, we need to recognize that most um, clinicians are likely seeing patients across the entire spectrum of payment arrangements, and they probably don't really know what type of payer each patient has. So let's imagine a panel of a typical primary care physician. In a single day, they might see um, Medicaid patients that are in an ACO that they're at full capitated risk for. They might also see Medicare patients that they bill fee-for-service for, so they bill for that um, that visit, but then at the end of the year, they might get some bonus um, if they, you know, do all the requisite screenings and lab tests at the right times for those patients. And then they might, um, on the same day, also see a few private insurance patients for whom they just bill fee for service for everything that they do to them. Um, so hopefully, you can already see that clinicians are facing conflicting incentives within their own practice, depending on the patient. So let's think about the kind of care you would be incentivized to give to those different patients based on the types of payments you receive for those services. So starting with fee-for-service, with fee-for-service patients like the um, commercial or the Medicare patient examples, the clinician would see as many patients as they possibly can to get a maximum reimbursement, or you would just want to do as many things as possible if you were to get the maximum reimbursement. But then for the full-risk Medicaid patients, you're paid a fixed amount, say, per month for all the care that person needs. Um, So at first glance, you might think that the clinician would want to limit the care they give, and that's been a problem in the past, actually. Um, You would want to see that person as little as possible so that you can just pocket the rest of the money. Um, However, if you're truly at full risk for all of the care that that person needs, then you would have to share the burden of some hospitalization cost or a trip to the emergency room. So they would be responsible for meeting you know, certain quality metrics for that person to ensure that they're receiving what they actually need to keep them healthy. So because of this little extra addition, and this is you know, in addition that's been sort of put on a lot of different value-based contracts, The clinician is now incentivized to actually make sure that person is getting exactly what they need, uh, regardless of the payment. So for one patient, that could mean spending extra time with them. Um, For another, it might mean sending them over to chat with the social worker in the office to get them through a challenging time. For a different patient, that might mean sending them to their community health worker or sending their community health worker to their house because they keep failing to show up for appointments and might need additional services or even just transportation to the office. And figuring those things out is something that they can help with. Let me just provide a little bit you know, more of a concrete example. You can already see that the these value-based care models allow for the financial freedom to choose how to provide care for patients. Um, so a clinician in you know sort of a typical um, primary care office could hire different staff, you know, even shock, non-billable staff. They can free themselves from the treadmill then of endless brief billable visits and focus on giving the type of care that their patients need. So when I mentioned sending someone to a social worker or sending them to their community health worker or sending a community health worker out, those types of staff are now pulled into the larger Um, you know, context of this value-based care model where you don't have to worry so much about them being able to bill for each individual visit or service that they're giving to your patients. 
So the problem right now, however, you know, thinking about that world is that you've got these clinicians that are being forced to simultaneously stand in both of these different worlds. Um, they've got some patients at risk and some patients, patients that are just strictly fee-for-service billing. So I think that it's you know, disingenuous of us to expect them to just bill like crazy and provide all these non-billable services to keep people healthy. And think about things like um, documenting uh, quality metrics and, you know, just thinking about giving screens at the right time, you know, for a subset of patients. So it's just been really challenging for clinicians to live in, in these two different worlds. Hmm. I uh, really see the dilemma. I think you've illustrated it really well. Well, let's continue on your conversation with Dr. Mota and see if we can't get our hands on some answers. I'm really interested to hear from one of the top experts on this and kind of get a peek into what she's advising, advising hospitals to do to try and mitigate this kind of internal dissonance that's you know happening for a lot of doctors in different organizations. And I hear that in your conversation with her, you two got to take in a beautiful afternoon in Massachusetts. We sure did. Yeah, it was a little bit loud where we were sitting, but we were able to be outside, so that was really nice. <laughs> everyone and welcome to summer in Massachusetts. We are recording outside today because if it's summer in Massachusetts we try to be outside as much as possible if it's not raining. So we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Namada Mota today who is a physician in Boston area and one of the leaders in value-based healthcare. So Namada, can you just give us a little bit of background um, on who you are and what you're passionate about? Thank you very much, Sarah. It is wonderful to be here with you this afternoon on a beautiful summer Boston afternoon. I, as you mentioned, am a clinician by training uh, and see patients as a hospitalist uh, at the Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston. I spend a majority of my time, however, focused on healthcare delivery transformation and really focused on how do we make the systems of care in which we provide care for patients better. And in the course of my career, that has manifested itself in a variety of different forms. I spent about a decade working on the provider side, uh, focused on clinical strategy, as well as in the latter part of my time in provider systems, building and scaling accountable care organizations and population health management teams, uh, with a specific focus on primary care transformation uh, and building care management programs. Currently, I have the privilege of uh, leading the NEGM Catalyst Initiative, uh, which is a new publication that was launched by the New England Journal of Medicine about two years ago uh, that is specifically focused on leveraging and scaling practical innovations in healthcare delivery. And it's the combination of, of those things, my clinical work, working at Catalyst, uh, as well as continuing to work with organizations in helping them build their accountable care organizations that really fuels uh, my day-to-day my -day passion in making the healthcare system better. Awesome, thanks for that. So as you said, you've got a pretty broad background in your clinical world, in your work on systems transformation uh, prior to your time at the Catalyst, and now you've got this great uh, situation where you're hearing from leaders across the country and you're able to sort of pool all that information um, together to uh, sort of you know create change at a 
broader level, I think. So based on all of those worlds, um, kind of pulling it all together, how does the shift to value-based care impact PCPs and the delivery of care currently as you see it sort of at a local level and maybe at, at a, um, a national level? It, uh, it's important to understand that in order for primary care, pra individual primary care physicians, primary care practices, hospital systems writ large, that the shift to value-based care is only going to actually have an impact if there is sufficient volume. If we reach the tipping point between the number of patients that we take care of that are where that we are responsible for, who we are reimbursed for, uh, fee-for-service versus value-based contracts, that that is a very powerful uh, driving initiative. Obviously, front and foremost, it's about providing excellent care to our patients, but the reality of the marketplace is that we are in this position where, if you look at a primary care physician's patient panel, it's very frustrating because some patients are commercially based fee-for-service contracts or have fee-for-service contracts and other ones are under alternative payment models and and that for really PCPs to to uh, change the model and the way they deliver care there needs to be a substantial there needs to be a tipping point now the the value that the current situation that we are in is that it is beginning to create a burning platform and it's beginning to create a burning platform that allows for things like population health which is a often overused somewhat trendy term but but from my perspective means the opportunity to take care of a population however you define it you can define population as the people that live in a certain zip code. You can define population by people who have a certain chronic disease. You can define a patient population by the type of insurance they have. So as long as you are very clear about the definition of the population you are trying to serve, you have transparency about whether you're being compensated for them value-based or not uh, will be powerful drivers to to really change the way that PCPs are positioned for success in changing changing the delivery of care. I'll say one more thing and then stop is that primary care physicians and physicians everywhere want to do the right thing and and give and provide the best care possible to their patients and everything else that's going on in the background should be aligning towards that true north of improved outcomes for our patients. Yeah, yeah. So you just talked a little bit about population health and the movement, you know, increasingly towards a population health management type approach at the PC level, at the practice level. So what are the, th let's say, three things that organizations need to focus on to actually do this? And maybe you can also speak a little bit more to that dichotomy where you've got um, groups of people right now that feel pulled in two directions, mm -hmm. the fee-for-service world, or they're living in two worlds at once, and it's very frustrating, the fee-for-service and the value-based world. Absolutely. I um, will start with the premise that we need to be providing excellent care for patients that is payer blind. Nobody, no primary care doc, no specialist, no nurse practitioner, no pharmacist, nobody on the clinical care team ever should or wants to worry about what kind of insurance their patient has. And so as we 
we need to keep that in mind. And so what's frustrating when you talk about the two-boat problem, as, as people have often called it, is that clinical providers have to pay attention to that because just even in service of the patient, it matters what insurance you have to determine what kind of antihypertensive is on the formulary. So day-to-day -day decisions, it, it, it matters and, and makes a difference, and that creates friction in, in the system. We are going to have that friction for a while, yep. but in the meantime, there are things that we can do to, to, to mitigate around it. To your, your other question around what are the, the things that organizations need to, to focus on, uh, I am not being glib when I say that it is culture change, culture change, and culture change. <laughs> and. The question then becomes, if you accept that, in fact, in order to be successful in this transition, you need to embrace and successfully demonstrate and scale culture change, how do you do that? Lying underneath that are the concepts and the tools that, that everybody talks about. It's about transitioning to really meaningful team-based care. It's about leveraging data and analytics uh, in, a, in a practical and, and meaningful way. Uh, and it is about thinking, about thinking about care delivery models that have impact. You cannot do or address each of those building blocks that I just mentioned without the overarching commitment to culture change. Because if you are not fundamentally, and by you I mean leadership, as well as everybody else in the organization is not committed to this, then it won't be sustainable in the long term. I agree, yeah, all the work that we do, generally speaking, has that either at the top or the bottom or in between and wrapped around it. Um, all right, so I think that, you, so one of the points that you touched on just now, uh, talking about actually doing team-based care, one of the pieces of that that we think about a lot is, and this is another term that's often maybe overused, but the, the idea of you know physicians or um, NPs or providers operating at the top of their license and then using other team members to do things like complex care management or uh, you know quality and data reporting and um, vetting and that sort of thing. So that walks us into the you know population health management piece that we might call stratification or risk adjustment. Um, so talk to us a little bit about um, how you recommend ACOs in particular think about using risk stratification to inform their pop health strategy. I agree with you. If you ask five different people what risk stratification means to them or how it's applied in their organization, you will get five different answers. I think about it going back to first principles is if you have a population for whom you are committed to improving outcomes and if we're going to use technical terms like value uh, improving quality while paying attention to cost then the first thing to do is actually understand that population and understanding that population means segmenting it in certain ways Traditionally, when people have talked about risk stratification, they've talked about high, medium, and low. And that high risk has to be for something. So it always concerns me a little bit when people say, my patient is high risk. Well, my patient is high risk for what? Mm -hmm. In the value-based world, it, there, is an, there is an 
unstated assumption, which I would sometimes take issue with, that it's a patient is at high risk for unnecessary utilization. So whether it be admission, readmission, ED visit, et cetera, there is an implicit assumption there that I sometimes take issue with. But that being said, in a value-based world, you can segment your population by those who are at high risk for unnecessary utilization. That has been a traditional, relatively traditional approach. And then once you think about it in that way, then there are people who are at high risk, medium risk, and low risk. Those medium risk and, and, and low risk populations have sometimes been defined as rising risk mm -hmm. to, to round out our, our taxonomy here. So that is one way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it, and, and my, my approach to this has evolved over the years, is thinking about segmenting patients or that population by what their needs are. So what is it that they actually need to have better outcomes overall? A piece of that absolutely is unnecessary utilization. Who wants to get readmitted to the hospital unnecessary, unnecessarily? But it also has to do with addressing what their needs might be, not only related to their chronic illness or their medical disease, but also their health-related social needs or social determinants of health, as, as people often refer to it, uh, as well as thinking about what their mental health or behavioral health might, needs, needs might be as well. Yep. So that's one, one approach, and, uh, or not one approach, but one half of the approach, which is understanding those patients and segmenting by what their needs are. A caveat there is that's, that's never going to be a clean definition because people have multiple needs. It's not just that you have diabetes, it's you have diabetes and you don't have secure housing and you have bipolar. With that caveat though, the other piece that organizations make the mistake of, of not doing is thinking about what resources they have to actually support that population. So you could have the best algorithm ever to identify what the needs of your population are or the best algorithm ever to identify who is at risk for readmission. But if concomitantly you're not examining what resources you have available to support those needs, then you will fail. Yeah. Let me give you two examples. There are, and, and we'll use the definition of high ri of the risk stratification around unnecessary utilization. So if you have a, uh, you want to build a clinical program that's focused on patients who are at high risk for admission or readmission, then if you are a organization that is relatively small, only physicians, let's say you don't have a hospital associated with, with, your, with your organization, then what you are going to be to be able to do or can do for supporting that patient population is very different than if you are a large integrated medical center with a lot of resources, care managers embedded in primary care practices and access to real-time technology as to when your patients are admitted and discharged from your home hospital. Yep. You can be successful in both models. If I have one takeaway for the audience today, it's you don't need to have a lot of resources to have impact in improving outcomes for your population. Yes. You don't. 
what you need to do is be very transparent and honest in terms of what identification tools you have and what intervention-based resources and tools you have. Uh, and that alignment is more powerful than having uh, unlimited resources that you are not necessarily applying thoughtfully. Yes, I love that. That's a really great example. Um, all right, so I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Last sure. question. Yeah. Um, in this new world of Medicaid ACOs in Massachusetts, there are a lot of clinical leaders out there that I think are you know, doing their best to try and make this all work and mm -hmm. do their best for patients. What one piece of advice would you have for clinical leaders from your perspective as a physician um, in this new model? That is a good question without one answer. So I own that you're throwing me a curveball, and I, and I always tell my, uh, my residents when I'm on service, and it is July, so I've just taken care of a lot of patients with a lot of new- All the new ones. All the new, the new doctors is put your nickel down. So when I would say, so you know, what do you think Mrs. Smith has? They go on and on about the 19 things that, Mrs., that is causing Mrs. Smith's shortness of breath, and I say, put your nickel down. So, so I will uh, put my nickel down if we are defining clinical leaders, and everybody can be a leader, if we are defining clinical leaders as the people who are on the front line leading their teams every day in a health center, in a primary care practice, uh, in, in any ambulatory clinic, I would say that be part of the culture change that is required to be successful. Make this your problem as well. And it is hard, it is exhausting. I don't wanna mention the burnout word, but I will mention the burnout word, which is when, when you are, and, and providers everywhere, and I just don't mean physicians, but I mean anybody who takes care of a patient is exhausted because of the demands on their time and their resources, uh, it is really hard. That was evidence of our Boston uh, summer summer afternoon. Uh, when 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 there are already so many demands on our time, it's easy for for someone to say, "Well, be a part of the solution uh, and not the problem." But what I would say is that there is there is inspiration that comes from recognizing that uh, that investing in in yourself and investing in your team members uh, whether it is simply acknowledging that they did a good job today uh, is is not a solution to, to burnout I that is that is naive uh, but what it is a potential solution for is realizing this building block of culture change it will be necessary uh, for not only providers who are responsible and uh, practicing within a Medicaid ACO environment but going back to my earlier payer blind comment uh, taking care of all of our patients regardless of whether they're in an, in an ACO or not uh, and whether they have Medicaid as an insurance or something else Love that all right thank you so much for spending the time with us today and we would love to hear more from you in a future date thank you well it definitely seems that providers are being asked to do a lot to keep up with how quickly the ground is changing beneath them in the healthcare system right now but as we look into our crystal ball and into a future value-based care world, what are the critical changes that providers need to make to how they deliver care? And what do organizations need to do to kind of properly support this, this new world that doctors are trying to forge for themselves? 
Right. So to be frank, I think organizations are going to have to move a little faster to support their clinicians in a value-based world. Um, staff burnout's on the rise. We're hearing about it all the time. And we know that it is partly because we're increasingly asking providers to do things that conflict with one another and eat up more and more of their time. To best support this change, uh, we believe that organizations need to invest in staffing models that allow physicians and other primary care providers to operate at the top of their license. That's a catchphrase that we hear a lot, but it's um, I think it's really helpful to think about it that way, while other clinical staff can handle the rest. So for example, Let's think about complex care management, um, behavioral health support, connecting patients to social services, that all this can happen at the doctor's office, but they don't need to be provided by the actual doctor, Um, but they do need to be paid for. So in this transition time when these staff and these services are not billable, organizations might need to make difficult investment decisions about these types of staff. Um, And the data is there to to support that health improves and costs do go down when patients get these kinds of supports. Um, The reimbursement paradigms just really need to catch up. Um, In addition uh, to organizations providing this level of support, clinicians and doctors specifically really um, you know, need to begin to trust their support staff to care for their patients. I, I think that this is happening now, but it needs to happen e- increasingly. Um, it's hard. Change is really hard, but so is trying to do everything on your own. And we're seeing, as I said, with this burnout situation that they just can't do everything, nor should they have to because you know, they're, they're trained to do medicine you know, and they shouldn't have to do things that... Um, that they are not, you know, professionally trained to do. And then finally, there are other supports for this type of model. So for example, providing clinicians and support staff with really good data and information to allow them to create maximum health improvement and impact for the patients that they serve is a really great way for um, those groups to, um, you know, to be thinking about how to pull the information that they have together to, you know, to come up with interventions or, you know, models of care or workflows for what they're doing. Um, We'll actually get more into this in the next episode, but um, that's just a little bit of a teaser. So stepping back outside the crystal ball and kind of returning us to the messy present, what do uh, healthcare providers and organizations do now? How can they live and thrive in a world that's really in transition and kind of make this complex shift in the healthcare system that's affecting both payment and healthcare delivery more manageable for everyone. Right. So this is the practical piece. Um, let's just think about a few things that can be done now um, and in the near future. So first, I'd say start the culture change now. You know, educating providers and staff so that when we reach that tipping point where fee for service is a thing thing of the past. Um, clinicians and healthcare organizations will be better set up for success. Um, so how do you get clinician buy-in? You know, invest in growing clinical leaders. Identify those change champions, another, you know, sort of buzz phrase, but um, yeah, identify people that are, are really, really understand where this paradigm is headed and, and like it and want to change and want to lead um, and support those people with resources so that they can spread that change. Um, So second would be don't just focus on doctors, you know, change has to happen at all levels of the organization. And um, I don't, we don't have time to get into the specifics of what that could look like, but 
you know, the idea is to make sure that you're communicating well and involving all staff in the process. Um, And then third, I would say don't assume that you have to have a lot of resources to make an impact on your patients. Focus on using what you've got in creative and innovative ways. Think outside the box. Think about, you know, what can I do today, right now with what I have, Um, you know, and that includes the staff that you currently have. And then fourth, you know, do plan really carefully to support your efforts to transitioning to value-based care carefully. And so by this, we mean that you would want to make sure that you have some way to do things like risk stratification, um, that you can provide good team-based care, that you can respond to your patient's needs, um, and plan for those things. And what resources might you need in the near future or longer term to do that even better? But again, start where you, where you are right now. Otherwise, you won't see... Um, um, fully see the benefit. So in your work with providers across the healthcare system, Sarah, you know, you see a lot of people who are struggling with the logistics and the investment required for this big shift to value-based care. But do you also see organizations who are actively resistant and might view this most recent change as, as a fad or something that maybe only impacts pockets of their patients? Yeah, so let's, you know, I've got a sort of an ending thought there. While there's still conflicting evidence, you know, of the effectiveness of, of ACOs and other value-based care arrangements, that, you know, if you look on, you can look on the internet, do some research, and, and you'll find it out there that there's a lot that says they're great and they're working really well, and there's some evidence that says that they're not Um you know, we really believe, and I think that the evidence and the market shows that this is the direction that the healthcare system is going. If you think about, you know, what's happening at um, the federal level with MACRA, you know, generally speaking, you know, the healthcare system often follows Medicare in a lot of ways because it impacts so many um, people, so much of the population. You know, MACRA is fully moving the entire Medicare system towards value-based care. And I think that that's telling. I think that's important to consider. Um, And so most organizations recognize that if they don't invest in the capacities that they need, um, they'll be losing out on reimbursement and they'll struggle with staff retention. So most organizations that we actually work with have been talking or thinking about these changes for years and are using this system-wide transition to make some really innovative adjustments to their models of care. Some really exciting work has been going on. There's really no political momentum to go back to fee-for-service um, or towards something more pro- progressive. Like Dr. Moda said in our interview, you know, we're not really yet at this tipping point. And in these times of transition, the challenges and the incongruity that doctors and healthcare groups are facing, it's definitely frustrating. Um, but as the entire system's moving in this direction, organizations are going to find success when they invest in changing their culture and they put their care, the care of their patients first, as is sort of natural to them. So I think that that's, you know, an easy win. Well, I think this really seems like a good place to end our conversation. And uh, I really want to thank you so much, Sarah, for, you know, having a great conversation with Dr. Moda today and, and kind of diving into this complex topic. Um, And I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us this week, and we'll see you all next time on Unlocking Accountable Care. If you are interested in learning more about accountable care or how organizations can succeed in today's healthcare system, please visit our website, www.dayhealthstrategies.com, check out our blog, follow us on Twitter, and join our mailing list. We regularly post content relevant to current healthcare issues 
and overcoming challenges in delivering value-based care. Unlocking Accountable Care is a production of Day Health Strategies. Direction and editing by Max Blumenthal. Additional support and research by Emily Eibel and Nico Lehman. Our producer is Rosemary Day. Special thanks to Purple Planet Music for the use of their songs. 